0: Welcome to Stage Door Sessions by Broadway Direct. In this podcast, we have in-depth conversations with Broadway's brightest, bringing you what's new, what's noteworthy, and what's coming next to a stage near you. I'm your host, Elisa Gardner, and my guest today needs no introduction. Kelly O'Hara is one of our greatest leading ladies and biggest musical stars, and she is currently starring on Broadway in Roundabout Theatre Company's revival of Kiss Me Kate, now playing at Studio 54. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Lisa. Kelly has captured audiences' hearts in Broadway productions of The Light in the Piazza, The Pajama Game, South Pacific, Nice Work If You Can Get It, Bridges of Madison County, and most recently, The King and I, which earned Kelly a Tony Award and recently completed a sold-out run in London. If you're lucky, you may have also caught her off-Broadway in a musical adaptation of the film Far From Heaven or as the conniving Regan in King Lear or performing at City Center with the New York Philharmonic or the Metropolitan Opera, or in concert in various screen projects, such as the series 13 Reasons Why or The Accidental Wolf. Uh, thank you again for joining us, Kelly. I'm we so c- glad we that you're We could say here. a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Well, that makes me squirm, so let's move on. Uh, <laughs> well, in recent years, you have done uh, on Broadway these sweeping dramatic musicals, as I've just mentioned, from Rodgers and Hammerstein classics to Bridges of Madison County. Kiss Me, Kate is is another classic. It's in a slightly different vein, though. This show gives you an opportunity to once again show us your Funny side and how sexy you are, if I may say so. <laughs> oh well, thank you. <laughs> um, have you been
1: having fun with that? Oh yeah, no. I this is. Um, I knew I would have fun with this one. I, I thought that what I really need right now is a nice dose of joy and laughter and fun and and kind of uh, diverse. The, the, you know, I play two different women and I find them very different. Um, and I like that you said that. I mean, Jeff Mashi has dressed me in some of the most exquisite costumes from the 19 late 1940s. I always think of Lauren Bacall and the new look suit, you know, and the kind of, um, the, that, shape. And, uh, I, I really do feel like some sort of throwback. Um, and it, it's, it's fun to do that because it reminds me of the beginning of all of this, all of musical theater, everything. It's like going back there and, and being part of history.
0: Yeah, well, well, tell us a little bit about those two women, Lily and Kate, because you play these two very strong women, one being a Shakespeare character, obviously, from Taming of the Shrew. Um, they share a lot in common, but they're different. So, yeah, I know. I think they laid them over the top of each other.
1: I mean, they put the Lily and the Fred story of Kiss Me Kate on top of Taming of the Shrew. And so I think people think of them as the same person. Um you know, you talk about Kate as being this strong woman, yet we talk about Taming the Shrew as being the most misogynistic play ever written. But the truth of it is, is if you pull it out from under everything and 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 let's give Shakespeare credit, if, if it's due, maybe he meant all this. There was a queen, uh, you know, in power at the time that that if you look at the words, she does have a lot to say uh, that's in retort to this kind of behavior that that she's um you know, taking on from men all around her father and these suitors or anti suitors really. And Petruchio himself. I think that when you pull the language out, you realize that she has reason for being angry. But we in the past and over the last many, many years have just called that shrewish. You know, a woman who is not sweet and lays down and shuts up is just a shrew and she's difficult and she's, um, you know, nasty. Uh, But instead if a woman has been treated a certain way and actually has a voice about it, uh, we can look at it differently today, I hope. And that's kind of why I, I love Kate because playing her more simply and, and, um, and she's validated for kind of how she has been treated by the words that she says. And by the, um, by the way we can see her now in, in today's uh, world, um, I, I feel like she's very strong and bold. Now I, and I purposely put Lily kind of back in the 1940s, also a strong woman, definitely a, 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 a good businesswoman. She's good at her craft. She's become a movie star. She's been nominated for an Oscar. She's come back to help this show run by b- being one of the reasons it's selling and getting the backers money for it. She knows her power and yet she's still kind of at the, uh, you know, in the hands of men around her, like Fred, her ex-husband producers, probably, uh, this man, Harrison Howell, who she's going to be saved by at one point during the show, you know, she's still kind of a 1947, uh, starlet needy of that kind of help. Um, I find that she can speak through Kate. I find that her anger and her emotion actually gets to come to a boil through the strength of Kate. And that's how I make them work in tandem.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good point because Taming of the Shrew has come under scrutiny in recent years and decades, I think, because of how it – how people perceive that it portrays gender dynamics, you know, through the lens of of our time and and Kiss Me Kate by extension too a little bit. And I know that uh, Amanda Green, who uh, contributed to this uh, production, lyricist, uh, book writer, uh, composer also, um, she did, I think she called it minor surgery or delicate surgery. Tell us a little bit about how that happened.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the most powerful thing about Amanda Green, uh, aside from the fact that she knows both of these worlds, she knows the history of this, of this genre because of her father, Adolf Green. And yet she is this current strong, uh, very, um, very intelligent, powerful woman who can go in with just the fine tooth pen or the, the, the small needle and say, these are the things that we can leave in by way of example. Um, and these are the things we can change or take out so that we can make this, uh, we don't take the show apart. We don't try to recreate it. We still pay homage to kind of the, the, the period, the classic everything about it, the score, but then we're going to just take these things and, and rebuild or, or, um, just facelift a little bit. And I think uh, she we had to change the last song, which, is, which was a monologue in the Shakespeare play, basically saying, I am ashamed that women, all mm. of us are simple and we're all going to lay down for our husbands and be quiet. Well, in years past, only, the only way to make that work is giving that a wink. But we got the allowance this time to finally rewrite it. And instead of saying, I'm ashamed that men are all so simple and you're all stupid and cowards and, and, (laughs) and misogynistic pigs, we're going back to the middle, uh, maybe in more, the equal way, um, not swinging that pendulum all the way over, but coming to the middle and saying, I'm ashamed that people are, we shouldn't fight. We shouldn't seek for supremacy and sway because at the end of the day, the short time we have on earth really love is the only thing that matters by the end. And, you know, and so let's all try to work harder. And I think that was such a smart way of dealing with this rather than kind of turning it upside down. And, um, and I didn't, I didn't have any interest in singing it in general, even with a wink. Uh, I think the Douglas Fairbanks film brought that in. And then I think Meryl Streep did that in the park because it's the only way to do it because we're not going to say that women aren't going to say that and do that. Um, and so, She did little things like that. She took out some of the really ugly, ugly misogyny, but she left, like I said, she left some in the ones that nowadays get the laughs from the fact that, uh, that's stupid. Look how stupid that is. We shouldn't behave like that anymore. Whereas they used to get the laughs because people agreed with it, I guess, or men did. So, um, it was a I think it's a smart bit of surgery, as you say, and I I love being in a room with her. I've known her for years and this has been quite a, a, a pleasure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She seems very lovely. I met her once. Um, I want to talk about your singing a little bit. We we certainly can't ignore that. I, I think of you as a really great musical actress in the tradition of someone like Julie Andrews or Barbara Cook, In that as, as technically glorious as your soprano is, you make singing sound as natural as speaking. Um, that I always, when I hear you sing, feel like I'm listening to a story being told beautifully. Is that more challenging to do with a role like Lily? I mean, you do it beautifully. You don't make it sound more challenging, but you know, since the singing is more operetta like, or or when you do opera for that matter, is it more of a challenge to sound natural?
1: Well, thank you. That's a nice question and a nice compliment. You know, my teacher, my mentor, Florence Birdwell, she called her technique speaking on pitch. That's what she said. And if the thing thing didn't have meaning or heart or a realistic core, then it wasn't worth doing at all. I think approaching a piece of music, especially opera, as a technical uh, piece of information, you can do that. And there are beautiful sounds that come from it. And we know a lot of those singers who make the most bel canto perfect sound, but without heart or meaning or truth, and the truth is probably the main word I think about. There has to be something truthful about what you're doing. I think it's a waste of time. I don't I think they go together. They don't, they're not separated. And so hearing that is a huge compliment for me, probably the most, the biggest compliment, because that's what I endeavor to do. That's what I always seek out is the truth in a song, a lyric. And even if she used to say, even if you're singing ah on a melisma in an operatic aria, what is that ah? What does it stand for? And, um, and I totally invest in that. And so I find these songs, first of all, because I studied opera and that's more of where my voice wants to go. These are the most comfortable for me. It's when I am thinking technically in order to produce a belt or a musical theater sound that I can lose my head. But when I can sing freely and open my mouth without thinking too much about the technical aspect of it, because that's in place. Um, I can be the truest form of myself. So they're higher, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's harder to always, uh, have the right resonance or the right, um, plosives or anything like that when you're up higher. But for some
0: reason, to me, it feels the most natural. And I I hope that that's what's coming off. Wow. So you must get a lot of, well, how can you get a lot of rest? You have two kids. <laughs> you're a show eight
1: times a week. I get rest mentally. I guess you're right. I get rest because I don't, I don't worry those things as much. And I know they're few and far between for me to sing a classic score like this. I mean, that, it's probably why I find myself back in revival sometimes because I'm searching for the places to to get to do what I do. I mean, Bridges of Madison County was written for me, and that was more in the, in the vein of where I want to sing. And that was a glorious feeling, but often, um, you know, I don't get that opportunity to just kind of sing naturally, but also live my, my truth. Um, so I find myself in these revivals and I want to make them current and I want to make them part of I want to put part of me in them. So, um, Yeah. So it feels actually this show feels restful in a way because it feels right to me.
0: Yeah, that sounds right, too. Uh, you've worked with some really great, really prolific directors like Bart LaCher and Kathleen Marshall on on musicals, the kind of musicals you're you're talking about. You're now working with another, Scott Ellis, who I guess you maybe got to know a bit as Roundabout's associate director back when you did Pajama Game. And I'm sure you've encountered him um, throughout the years. What has it been like working with him more closely for Kiss Me, Kate? Is Is this the first time you've worked this closely with him? Well, we did. Um, I've known Scott for years and years, and I, I've done so
1: many of the Roundabout Galas, and he's always been around and, and being quite a leader. And um, I, when you asked me about Amanda Green, I was going to interject there. One of the reasons why we had such a wonderful edition of Amanda Green is because of a director like Scott Ellis bringing her on. It takes that kind of forethought and generosity in sharing the room and the gavel with someone and saying, I want your voice. I want your help. Scott to me is one of my favorite directors. Um, We have done, we did, you know, a a gala, one night gala of, she loves me. And um, I wasn't able to go on because I was in King and I to do the, the production, but then we did the one night of kiss me, Kate. So we have put together shows, but in a very quick way. So finally here, getting to sit down with him at a table for weeks on end to, to go through this, to talk about what we wanted to do and then get on our feet one of the things that really strikes me about Scott is how much he listens and how generous he is with that, with that creative, that creative. Now, of course, at the end of the day, he has the say, but he's also very generous with that. You know, he would let us try just about anything and then he would move us back in the right direction or he would agree to let us stay. Um, I've 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 really grown so much respect for him, from from this situation for him and just friendship. I mean, I, I, I adore him, actually really do.
0: <laughs> he was a busy guy this season too.
1: Yeah. Two shows yeah. basically on top of each other. I mean, he was, we were still trying to get our sea legs and he was already starting Tootsie. Um, and it's two very different shows, one kind of very contemporary and one classic and, um, he, but he's the kind of guy that never stops and he kind of thrives in that mayhem and you didn't ever feel, I mean, he still comes by here. I mean, he's sitting on this couch probably three times a week. And, and he's probably sitting on Santino's couch or, or whoever's over at Tootsie three times. He's he stops in, he 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 checks in and makes us feel like he's not kind of abandoning us and and I mean I mean he takes my kids for sleepovers. <laughs> you know, oh, he's how nice. he's a he's a generous, professional and personal friend.
0: It's a great director to have. What have the audience has been like? Um, have you come across people who remember, I guess the first production would be a stretch, but other revivals? I know you've spoken very movingly of, of Maren Massey, who passed last year and, and how you're honoring her with this. And yeah, I really want to. I mean, one of the reasons I decided to do it is because I, I
1: just, I miss her. We all miss her. And I remember seeing her in this and and getting that, it almost is like we can. I can refeel her again, you know, and because I'm paying, I want to pay homage to her in everything that I do. I mean, she was a huge influence on me. Ragtime, you know, seeing her in this um, over the years in concert, everything. So that feels great. Um, but you mentioned about the audience. We did have a couple come just last week. And they broke my heart he had seen the original and he never forgot it and they were just the most adorable they were celebrating their 55th or their 60th wedding anniversary or something and that was lovely because we had a lot of that during south pacific a lot of people who had but now you're starting to not have as many because we're 20 years you know we're getting we're getting on here in in our in our time but we i find that the audiences have been a, a good mix of those people wanting to come in and see the classic production and I think leaving very pleased um, with the new ideas and actually, str- I mean, I see some of the, the older people probably horrified by my take on I Hate Men.
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't think so.
1: but uh, Which is just a simple take, actually, but I think it's a little bit more to the, who knows. But I, we have a lot of young young people. I think Corbin Blue, who, you know, the uh, high school musical lore.
0: Oh, that's right. I think He's he brings, we get a lot of screaming
1: girls out there, which is really fun. And I think they, those young women, I think they're liking this take on this show. And even though it's a classic take on it, um, there are certain things in it that give that those, the women a voice in a way that I think is doubly good. Um, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. So they're seeing Kiss Me Kate for the first time, but in a different way. And I think
0: that's the reason why, why we're here. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting mix. I I spoke with your uh, co-star Will Chase, who I know he's got older children than you do, and he spoke about getting some really interesting feedback from his daughter, one of his daughters. And um, I know you have a ten-year-old son, is that right? And a five-year-old daughter. Have they both seen the production? Yeah, Owen's almost ten. Five-year-old daughter. I mean, they they both came to opening night and they've seen it one
1: other time, and they'll see it again. They they love it. They both told me this was their favorite one. Of course they're obsessed with the fighting and the right. <laughs> mommy being that physical and fun you know tr- funny and climbing stairs and slamming doors and and of course my daughter loves Stephanie Styles and the whole Bianca storyline and the men dancing and lifting her up and so it kind of has a little bit of everything for them and they love the music and um but they're getting you know they have asked me questions both of them she's been my five-year-old asks questions that you wouldn't even think a five-year-old. She's just been to a lot of theater already and Mm -hmm. I've exposed her to everything I can. And she has a lot of questions like, you know, what's up with three men at one time asking you Ah. all for, you know, (laughs) and, and why did you, you know, why did you say this? And why did you hit him across, you know, across the head? And, and these are conversations we're starting to have in a light way. And, um, I think my nine, almost 10 year old is, uh, gets it pretty well, you know, and, and he's, uh, that, that, it makes me feel good that my work, of course they're not watching 13 reasons why at this point, and they're not, (laughs) but the other work that I've done, we've had really good conversations. I mean, King and I, and we went to London and we're going to go to Tokyo and immerse them in a different culture. And I think those kind of conversations that I'm able to have with my kids about why I'm performing a certain role and what I want to say with it is a, is a great tool for just life lessons. And, um, it may, I feel fortunate for that to have that.
0: Yeah, you can learn a lot through musical theater. You Certainly, can. the the kind you do. I mean, it's really these are our American. This is this is classic stuff. The yeah. kind of stuff you're doing. Um, I remember reading an article about you around the time of South Pacific that I was thinking of recently. It was called the Ingenue that Roared. Um, the years since then, you have continued to take chances in a variety of a variety of roles that have taken you from Shakespeare at the public theater to opera at the Met. Have you actively sought out that kind of diversity, like you know, from role to role, trying different things? Um, and what advice would you give to ingenues coming up?
1: I really have, but I also am thinking a lot lately about how much we as actors and performers sort of take the work we can get. Now, I have spoken up a lot about how I wanted something to be diverse and I chose this over that. And I really tried hard, the hard as hard as I could to say, do a classic musical and then maybe try to do something contemporary or then try to do a Shakespeare play and then come back into a comedy. I tried really hard for my own psyche and for my own craft to learn something more and to, to stretch myself. But I will say to people, unless you're a, a you're producing your own things in Hollywood and you're a huge film star or you're a major theater star. If you're trying to support your family and make a living, the truth of it is, is that I've also taken work because I needed the job. And I've also taken work because it was the only job I could get or, or it seemed like a great job, but would I have wanted to do a play instead or, you know a a different kind of role, yes, and and I think those are. There's two parts to that answer. Then, yes, I with what I had, I tried to choose the most diverse things f- for my for my learning and my craft. But I al- we also do um, what we have to, and it's hard. It's hard to find work all the time, and I feel so lucky to have been able to find work and also work that is diverse. For instance, going back to the opera, even being able to do that. Was a dream come true then coming back here and playing stronger women as I get older, as opposed to my life stopping because the ingenue ended for me. I I'm grateful for that every day that I'm still working and I hope that that continues. Um, but the reason I say that and bring it up is because I've seen people come in recently to my dressing room or something and they'll say, gosh, I didn't know you could, uh, sing that way. Or, or I didn't know that you had that in you. And you think to yourself, we all have a lot in us. We just don't, we get to show, and I mean, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I, I'm not saying I'm great at everything, but there's so much we all are desperate to show people, but you don't always get the the outlet. You know, you'd have to go, these days, kids are smart. They're starting to do it themselves. They're starting to write it themselves, produce it themselves, create it themselves. I didn't really come in, uh, come up in that world. So as I get more of a voice and more, more confidence, it makes me want to say, well, you know what else I can do? Let me show you, you know, I'll go, I'll go rent the room and invite you all to see it. I don't know what that is, but you, you don't know that you can, that you can really strike out and be different because we're just trying to hang on and get a job, you know, and they tell you in the beginning, be one thing, figure what it out is so you can get in the door. But the truth of it is, is that we all have a million things we want to show.
0: We really do. Yeah. Have you thought about
1: recording another album? I actually am am in in current discussion about that. It's, it's really hard at this point for me to know exactly what to do. And so recently I think I've just thrown it in the towel and said, I'm just going to record another really fun album because you always think you have to make these huge statements with your albums. And my first two, I didn't really. Um, the first two, the first one was kind of out of my hands. The second one, um, you know, I produced. And so I didn't have a lot of money to, um, and then I got sick when we were recording it and I couldn't afford another studio day. So oh, no. I recorded a solo album when I was, you know, that's, that's how it goes. So you don't want to get too precious about it. And so I think, yes, I am going to record another album and um, it'll just be probably what feels good to sing. Um, not so much a statement about where I am right now. Um, when I have the luxury to do that, again, financially or where I am, you know, you have, you think to yourself, but I have a million things to show. Uh, but you sometimes just make the album that, that you, that you can. And there'll be more opera in your future. Yes, there will. And you know, I think that that is because when you talk about stretching yourself and continue continually learning your craft, I mean, I love this work. And by this work, I don't put it in a box. Like some people think of it. I think this, I think as an actor and a singer, that means I do all acting and all singing. That's what I think it means. And I don't know if I'm going against the grain, but that means I'll try to do more film, more television, more plays. Um, and as a singer, more opera, more jazz, more musical theater, more country singing. I don't care. I want to do it all. Even if I fall on my face, I feel like that's my that's my obligation to myself to just keep trying new things. Otherwise, we kind of atrophy or something. Uh, um, I'm constantly wanting to just keep stretching.
0: Yeah. Well, stretching, I imagine, is what you do when you're doing a show like this eight times a week with a combination of physical comedy and and the vocal demands. I mean, is it do you have to basically live like an athlete in training? I talk about this a lot lately.
1: We are kind of living like athletes, especially the dancers. But I mean, I'm you feel me. I'm 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 massaging my (laughs) chest, but I'm massaging my rotator cuff as we speak this whole time because I've tweaked it in the show. But I come in and I have to do a full yoga stretch every night. And if I don't, I run the risk of really hurting myself in, in this physical show, but the dancers and the, the way they take care of themselves. And but then you remember we have no off season, like a professional athlete. We don't get, you know, time off. And when I do take a vacation, that's, I'm missing my, I'm, I'm letting my company down. I'm gone. So you never get a full mental vacation. So it's this weird kind of life of, of living and I'm not complaining. I mean, I've heard some people recently, oh, Broadway's hard. Yeah, it's hard, but it's also the dream, you know, right. and we're still getting to live it. But it is a sacrifice as far as like a, you know, an easy lifestyle is concerned. That it's not the case. I don't go out and party every night. And if I do, I pay for it. I don't, you know, I go home every night to my children because I want to be a good mom. Um, and I miss out on a lot of things. But I think those are the sacrifices I want to make to keep working at a certain level, and I actually I never have any regrets about it. Yeah, but yeah, I'm sore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wasn't even thinking of of that, though there's so much of there's so much action in this production and things mm-hmm. where you can physically get hurt. But the voice is also an instrument. And to sing songs like this eight times a week, I would think takes a lot of discipline, too, even at your level where. Oh, man, I think for any level. And, you know, I have a lot of the opera world come in and see me and they'll be like you
1: did two today. This is your right, second show right. and you do eight a week. I mean, I can't believe that. And this is kind of a, there's some opera in this show, or a little bit of in, in this show as well. But again, that's what feels easy to me. It's the other stuff that is hard for me to do. Um, more of this, this, uh, this is a constant bit of yelling. There's a shouting match in this show. So it's more of the speaking and, and King and I was similar. Um, So, you know, because people doing plays, they have to take care of their voices. You know, there's, there's an athleticism to that too. There's a physical need for, for nurture and being in shape and, you know, your voice, just like you said, it's an instrument. We stretch it, we warm it, we, we do it, we care for it. We coddle it, whatever we have to do. The only thing I will say is that once you do a show for a while, and even now I'm kind of froggy, I've had a cold all weekend, but you, there's a muscle memory. There's a beautiful sense of muscle memory that takes over and sometimes even when you think that you can't pull it off, sometimes your, your voice will show up for you um, just because it remembers the places so well to go. Um, I mean, I've had the other happen where I thought it was going to be fine. And then whew, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I apologize to those audiences forever. But uh, for the most part, you can depend on your instrument if you care for it. It'll care for you.
0: Well, that said, we will let you care for it and have some (laughs) tea or do your reading exercises before you go on stage. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. This was really a pleasure. Always nice to talk to you. And you as well. For all things Broadway and to find tickets to your next show, visit broadwaydirect.com. This podcast is produced by Broadway Direct and the Niederlander Organization with Iris Chan, Glenn Halcom, Erin Pravosnik-Wagner, and hosted and produced by me, Elisa Gardner. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on Broadway.